This is Acts uh, 6, beginning in verse 1. In those days, the number of disciples was increasing, but the Hellenistic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. And so the twelve called all the disciples together, and they said, It's not right for us to give up the ministry of the word to wait on tables. So choose, brothers and sisters, from among you seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and bring them to us and we will turn the responsibility to them and we will continue with prayer and the ministry of the word. And the proposal seemed good to everyone and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a recent convert to Judaism. And they brought them to the apostles and they prayed and laid hands over them. And the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem was increasing rapidly. Even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I remember more than 20 years ago, the pastor of one of the larger churches in America was talking about his experience when he was invited to Harvard Business School. They were doing a case study of his church. And his church's mission was to take irreligious people and turn them into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So they did the case study. They had some question and answer among the graduate students. Then finally, one young woman student raised her hand and she said to the pastor, it seems to me that what you're saying is you're trying to take atheists and turn them into missionaries. And he said, suddenly it hit him. No wonder this is so hard. And it is hard. It is hard to take atheists. And turn them into missionaries. It is hard to take the irreligious and, and help them become devoted followers of Christ. And it's important to know, though, that it can be done and it is being done. Because survey after survey continues to show that the fastest growing uh, section on religious preference surveys is none. N-O-N-E. And that the number of atheists and agnostics is growing much faster than any particular uh, denomination. In fact, the only other group that are, uh, is growing are the Mormons, while most of the mainline evangelical and traditional faiths continue to recede. So a number are being converted, and that I praise God for that. that that's amazing. But I want to tell you this morning what's even harder than taking an atheist and turning him or her into a missionary. And we find it in Acts chapter 6. And that's taking a person who is fully set and convinced that their religious beliefs and practices are the exact right ones and opening them to the new movement of God through the Holy Spirit in their life. It is easier to take an atheist and turn them into a missionary than to take a deeply religious person in practice and belief and open them to what God may be yet doing in their life. And that is what we see when we come to Acts chapter 6 today. We see some people who are pretty set in their ways. They are priests, and they serve in the temple of Jerusalem. And the practices and rituals that they have inherited are centuries old, and they're set in doing them. 
uh, they remind me in a sense of a person. Um, uh, my, my son was uh, playing for me a routine by comedian Jim Gaffigan. And he's talking about his wife, who is a fairly staunch Catholic. And this is the way he described her. He said, my wife is a Shiite Catholic. And I think, you know, we smiled because we knew what he was talking about. Somebody who's pretty set in what they're doing. And you and I know Shiite Muslims. We know Shiite Catholics. We know Shiite Methodists and Baptists. Folks who are stuck and entrenched in what they have practiced and what they believed. And there's a lot of good to be said about that. Because um, our religious beliefs and practices give us a ground on which to stand. They, They give us an identity. Uh, A lot of us know who we are and whose we are because of our faith. Uh, For some people, they even give us uh, uh, the position that we have come to in in our community, in our society. A lot of people, because of the practices and beliefs that have been handed down to them, have been shaped to become very responsible people in the community. But i got to tell you, when we talk about the priests in Jerusalem, these are folks who definitely found their identity in their faith as they had long practiced it and received it. They also found their position, which was quite lucrative, as a priest in the temple through that faith. And that was all wonderful, except when the Holy Spirit moved and God sent God's one and only Son as the Messiah, they missed it. Deeply, deeply religious people with long-held religious practices Looking for God, worshiping for God, waiting on God. God shows up and they missed it. How is that possible? Well, sometimes it is our religious beliefs and practices that lock us in. In such a way that we're blind to what God may be doing and saying in our life. Richard Rohr, in a wonderful book that we'll be reviewing this summer, Falling Upward, talks about the prodigal son and his older brother in Luke 15. And he said, the older brother is an example of a person with deeply held beliefs and practices. And his identity is founded on being the older brother. That's who he is. And hanging around the farm and doing all the things that he thinks his father wants him to do, which he believes will make him acceptable to his father, that's his position. And he's grounded in it. And so when something unusual happens, that the father could display love for a wayward son who didn't keep the rules and who left the home, he doesn't get it. When the father does something unusual like explain to the son, I love you as you are, even if you hadn't kept all the rules, all that I have is yours, he missed it. So set in what he'd always done and what he'd always believed that he missed a movement of his father. Uh, in, in his life. And much the same thing, I think, happened among the priests. I love Eugene uh, Peterson's description of the priests in Jerusalem. He said, he said they're like a friend of mine who, uh, who lives uh, in the mountains, and she has a, a large window that looks out on the Grand Tetons. And it's a majestic view, and it's a wonderful window that opens for that view. But he said, my friend wants that view to remain pure and crystal clear, so she spends a great deal of time and energy cleaning smudges off the glass. And he said, over time, what I noticed about my friend is she has now missed the view and she's more concerned about the glass and keeping it clean and missing the grandeur on the other side of the glass. And Peterson said, the priests were like that, so intent on keeping access to God as they knew it, clear, the way they understood it, that they missed when God started to move and actually sent the long-promised Messiah. It's difficult to take an atheist and convert them to a missionary 
it may be even more difficult to take a deeply held religious belief and practices in a person and help them be open to something God may be doing. And the price for their inability to move was steep. First of all, they missed the Messiah that they'd been waiting for for hundreds of years. And then, almost as bad in my mind, they turned around and started flogging and arresting people who believed in the very same God they did. And friends became enemies because of the concern for the glass and the missing of the grandeur on the other side. That's what's so beautiful, though, about Acts 6. Acts 6 tells about people who, I guess, were previously irreligious coming to be disciples and priests who had these deeply set convictions and practices opening up to see Jesus as the Messiah. So it got me to asking, quite naturally, how did this happen? How do you explain this movement among the irreligious and the deeply, staunchly set in their ways religious? How did the Holy Spirit, how did the Word of God move among these people? Well, one thing that I I thought about is maybe they were moved because of the crowds were being attracted to Jesus the Messiah. 3,000 people on Pentecost, a couple thousand more a little bit later. Uh, Maybe they believe 5,000 people can't be wrong. And so as crowds came to Jesus, maybe the priests followed. I mean, that's pretty much what we believe in our day. We think if you can get a big enough building, pack enough people in it, have a famous person talk about Jesus, surely folks are going to be attracted. Maybe, but that's not how it worked here in Acts seems like the more people that came to Jesus, the more the priests got disturbed. And as the crowds grew, they arrested the disciples or the apostles and they went back and arrested them again. It was the crowd that actually seemed to be the cause of their opposition. Growth is significant, but we have to remember that even in religious matters that uh, cancer is a growth as well. Maybe there's something else. And then I thought, well, maybe it's the pastoral leadership. I mean, look at these Giants of the faith, Peter, James, John, and pastoral leaders, I think are significant. I wouldn't have bothered to introduce to you this morning Robert Ortiz and and Matt Scott, our two newest pastors. They're significant. But if you look at the trajectory of Acts 6, the, the hinge, the turning point, seems to be when the apostles sort of step aside and said, we'll preach, we'll pray, and you minister, and you go this way. To the people, it was when the pastors began to share, it seems like things opened up. So I was still left scratching my head about how do you explain the religious and the irreligious both being converted to Jesus. Here's my best guess. First one will be obvious to you because this is the book of Acts. Many people call the book of Acts the gospel of the Holy Spirit and rightly so. I believe none of this happens apart from the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And uh, anything that we try to do on our own will be just that. It'll be stuff we do. But when we are dependent on the Holy Spirit, following the Holy Spirit, working with the Holy Spirit, then it's not a matter of what we do, but becomes a matter of what God does through us. And so amazing things will happen all the way through the book of Acts, including the conversion of the religious. Because the Holy Spirit is moving. And the, and, the, and the apostles know this. They said, you know, we've got to be praying because they know how essential their connection is to the, to the Holy Spirit. You know, I've, I have a wonderful, um, well, actually it's on the desk over there. I have a wonderful iPhone, does many things. But when it's out of juice, it does absolutely nothing. It has to be charged. 
It has to be connected to a source of power and things begin to happen. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. So to me, that's an obvious explanation, but there's even more. In Acts chapter 6, just in seven verses, we find the phrase, the word of God comes up a number of times. What these apostles know is if they'll be about the word of God, teaching it and living it, that things will happen. They probably know the promise God made through the prophet Isaiah when God says, my word is not going to come back to me empty. If it goes out, things will happen. The word of God is so significant that we ask children to bring money so that we can buy Bibles in, in the heart language of the people of Burundi, uh, which is Karundi. And we're so fortunate people who work in Africa have told us that you know, that's so unusual because usually in African country there are so many different dialects. But we're set up here. We're set up here, so we're trying to get the Bible out um, to these folks. And because we know the Word of God. Word of God creates powerful movements with the Holy Spirit among the religious and the irreligious. But there's one more thing that I think you should notice, because just as the Holy Spirit runs all the way through Acts, at least in the first few chapters of Acts, through chapter 6, you're going to see something else. And that is you're going to see a community that cares deeply for others in the community and outside of the community. And when that community care gets connected with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, the mountain of evidence is so strong that no religious or irreligious person can resist its influence. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. What they do? They shared what they had, they gave it to the poor. Acts chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we read that if they uh, sold land, they would come and give it to be distributed to those in the community who had need. Acts chapter 6, this morning, there are widows who need to eat. And so they band together and they share and take care of these widows' needs. It is a body living out, enfleshing the love of God. You know, my preference would be that when you walk outside this morning, God would just write in the sky, I love you, sign God. And everybody would get it and they go, wow, I get it. God prefers to work through what theologians call incarnation. God prefers generally to enflesh the Holy Spirit, to put the Holy Spirit in people and have them do the work of God. Put another way, how do people know that God loves them? The answer is because they see it and they experience it. And you. And so all this is happening and the, and the priests are watching it. We know they're watching because they've already arrested the apostles two different times. They know what's happening. They see this care. They see this compassion. They see this love. And finally they can't resist. And they start coming over. In a sense, the best argument for the faith becomes... The way that we love both those inside the faith and those outside the faith. And people eventually can no longer stand in resistance. St. Francis put it this way. He said, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. The best criticism of the bad. Are are you concerned about the way people live their lives? Uh, The beliefs that they hold? uh, The actions that they take? The best criticism of the bad, he said, is the practice of the better. And so in front of the priests, who I believe they thought were were dead wrong about Jesus, because the priests didn't think he was the Messiah, 
the best way to address that was with the way they lived and the way they loved. That became their argument. And apparently for a number, it was compelling. Um, I was uh, fairly young, but I remember it, 1968, Democrats were having their national convention in Chicago. And it was, as you may recall, if you lived back then, a wave of student protests. And you'll probably remember students gathered there in Chicago, and they were all chanting because the cameras were on them. Do you remember what they were saying? They all chanted, the whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. Well, I think they were overconfident. And I think they were naive. But I think we have to understand that people are watching. The priests were watching. But here's the deal. I don't think people are really watching to see which way we vote. Not that it's, un, it's, not, not that it's unimportant, but I don't think that's their main concern, that they worry about how Christians are voting. I don't even think people outside the faith are even looking to see how we are with our doctrines. I think they're watching to see how we love them and how we love each other. How do we live these deeply held convictions that we have? Are we open to God's movement? Do we share those movements with others? I believe that so profoundly that one of the things that we're doing in a church is September 21st through 23rd, we're going to have a retreat on this campus, and all of you are invited. You'll find it on the city and eventually in the bulletin. You can sign up if you desire. Called faith walking. And the whole deal is this that we understand that at least a large number of us are passionately and deeply committed to Jesus. And we've got firm convictions about that. But how does that get translated into the community? How do we live and love the faith that we hold so deeply? And this retreat will give us a chance to explore that together. And I believe the community around us will be different when they experience in us what the irreligious and deeply religious experienced in the disciples. Six years ago, Dinah and I had the privilege of going uh, to Ghana in West Africa. And though we didn't get to actually see this building, uh, I heard about it. It's a famous building. It's called um, uh, Cape Coast Castle. And it was built originally to house lumber traders and executives in the lumber trading business. But eventually Cape Coast Castle became famous because there was a dungeon underneath the main floor. And in the dungeon, in cramped and inhumane quarters, were chained slaves who were going to board on a ship from Ghana and head to the Western Hemisphere, most of them to South America. Chained, crying out, and in pain. They waited for the trip. They waited to be sold as property to another person. But what's more interesting about Cape Coast Castle to me is above the dungeon is a large banquet area. And there was a church that met there every Sunday. Church above, slaves below. And when the slaves were making so much noise that they couldn't pray or sing... Above, in the banquet room, they sent ushers down to tell the slaves in chains in the dungeon to be quiet. Be quiet, we're having trouble praying to our God. Be quiet, we're having trouble singing to our God. Be quiet, we're having trouble holding on to our deeply held convictions about Jesus Christ. I thought, 
How on earth does that happen? I don't know. But I do have a guess that the church with deeply held convictions meeting on the first floor, I think never got to see the church that the priests saw in Acts chapter 6. They never got to see a community that lived those convictions in love for all people. They never got to see people like us.